So last week we got through 1 Samuel and Saul dies. Three of Saul's sons die, which is kind of what we've been waiting for, right? David's supposed to be the next king. Saul's the current king. Saul's not happy that David's going to be the next king. There was this chase all over the place for years and years and years. So we've sort of been waiting for, anticipating Saul's death. And when he dies, we would assume the next logical thing to happen would be David becomes king. And that's not what happens. Uh, Anybody find in your life that what you thought was going to happen next isn't always what God makes happen next? Like God doesn't always work on your calendar or my calendar or your timetable or my timetable, that very often God's doing something bigger that we don't see. And so our thought is, well, it should happen now, and it doesn't happen now. As a matter of fact, I could help God with this if he would ask. Like I could advise him on how things are supposed to work. My advice would be something like this. God, if it's a good thing, it should happen now. If it's a bad thing, it should happen never. Easy. That's clear. All right. God shouldn't have any problem interpreting it. I could write it on a three-by-five card. He could put it in his pocket. And when he's confused, he could pull it out and go, okay, good thing now, bad thing Never. And I think that's probably what most of our three-by-five cards would look like, right? That's kind of what yours would look like. If it's a good thing, it should happen now. If it's a bad thing, it should happen never. But God doesn't work according to our three-by-five cards. Like he doesn't work according to our calendar and our timetable. He's often doing something that we don't see or don't know or haven't thought about. And that's the way David's life is. As a matter of fact, uh, Saul dies, his son dies, And in 2 Samuel chapter 2, it begins with, in the course of time, right? Which is very vague, isn't it? In the course of time. Have you ever prayed and gotten a vague response from God? Like, when, God? In the course of time. Thanks. That helps me out a lot. But often, that's God's response. In the course of time. I'm not going to tell you right now. It's coming. you got to hold on. you got to wait. So what happens in the middle is... David actually becomes half king or king of half the country. At the southern part of the country, David's already been defending. He's already been fighting their enemies. And so when Saul dies, they all rush to David and said, we want you to be king. But the northern kingdom wasn't as familiar with David. And so they made one of Saul's sons king, a guy by the name of Isboseth. Isboseth, guided by... Abner, who was one of Saul's officials, and Abner was really kind of the brains of the whole deal. He set Isboseth up as the king of the northern kingdom, and Abner kind of ran things uh, behind him. Now, Abner was loyal to Saul because he worked for Saul, but there was probably some personal gain that he hoped to get out of this whole deal, which is why he didn't want David to be king. He wanted this other guy to be king. So you got David in the south, Saul's son in the north, and this creates years of civil war. Like the two are at it for who's going to ultimately be king, who's going to win out. As a matter of fact, chapter 3 in 2 Samuel begins this way. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. Again, a very nebulous time frame. It just lasted and lasted and lasted and went on and on and on But the next part of that verse says, David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker 
and weaker. Like, I know this isn't your timetable, David. Like, I know this isn't the way you would have planned it. I know that this doesn't fit your calendar, but what you don't see yet is that in this long time, you're getting stronger. Like, something's going, something's happening in this inside of you. Like, I know this is dragging out, and it's not what you wanted, but what you don't understand is by going through this, you're getting stronger, and the enemy's getting weaker. Like you're advancing and the enemy's starting to retreat. You're getting better. You're becoming who you're supposed to be. And a lot of times we miss that. And our, and our anxiety to get good to happen now and bad to happen never, sometimes we miss the point that going through this is working something out inside of me. It's developing something in me. Now, why does David get stronger and stronger and his enemy get weaker and weaker? A couple of suggestions, a couple of thoughts on that. One is that during the David doesn't know when it's going to end, when he's going to become king, but David's continually pursuing and praying and seeking God's direction. Here's an example, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord. Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. And we find this all throughout this period of David's life. David inquired of the Lord. He didn't allow his frustration with the fact that things weren't working out in his timing to cause him to run from the Lord. But he also didn't allow his successes to make him think that he didn't need the Lord. Like he's still saying, God, what do I need to do? Where do I need to go? What's your plan? And he asks specifically, God, what do you want me to do today? Which often is the best way to pursue God's will. I mean, the best way to pursue God's will is just to pray every day. God, what do you want from me today? Like, where do you want me to go today? David doesn't ask about the grand strategy. David doesn't pray, okay, when am I going to be king? What's the first thing I should do? What's the first decree I should make? Where's the palace going to be? Like he's not playing, praying way down the road. David's praying, God, what am I supposed to do today? Where am I supposed to go tomorrow? And there's nothing wrong with grand strategy prayers. That's not what I'm saying. There's, there's time to pray, big picture, big strategy. God, what if? Where are we going? Where's this thing going to end up? There's times to pray that. But much more often, the better prayer is, God, what do you want from me today? What's the move I'm supposed to make today? What's the place I'm supposed to go to today? Another thing about David, not only was he inquiring of the Lord, not only was he praying for today, but David was obeying what God told him. Like, he wasn't just asking. He was, he was obeying. Uh, in, that, <clears throat> in that verse, uh, verse 2 of 2 Samuel chapter 2, the follow-up to his request is, so David went there. God, where should I go? Go to this place. So David went there. There was this immediate obedience, and there was this complete obedience, which you probably heard before. Partial obedience is disobedience. Incomplete obedience is disobedience obedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. That wasn't David. David's asking of God and 
trying to find out what God wants for him. And then David's response is, I'll do it. I'll do whatever you ask. I'll do everything that you ask. I will obey completely. And one of the reasons to obey completely and obey immediately is because God is not going to change his request. I don't know if you've found this out before. Like it, if you ask a different way, God's not going to say, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to change my mind. If you ask a hundred times, God's not going to go, oh, okay, I'm going to change my mind this time. When God says, look, this is what I want you to do, the only response is to obey immediately and to obey completely. Well, in the story, eventually Saul's son is killed. <clears throat> and over the course of time, David becomes king over all of Israel, the northern part, the southern part. He gets installed as king. He decides to make Jerusalem the capital. So he moves to Jerusalem. He builds a palace. He builds relationships with these other kings who become supportive of him and on his side. He defeats the Philistines as they start attacking after David is king. Like he is establishing himself as king and he's establishing Jerusalem as sort of the center of politics and social life and spiritual life. This is where I'm going to lead from. I'm going to govern from. This is where God's going to be is here in Jerusalem speaking to me as I'm leading the country. And, and to to sort of solidify Jerusalem as the capital city, David decides to bring a very important symbol to Jerusalem. It's a symbol that goes back thousands of years, back to the time of Moses that we talked about earlier. Moses leads the nation, the Hebrew children, out of Egypt. And they're going to the Promised Land, but they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And God gives them instructions. They're going to camp, they're going to take down camp, they're going to set up camp, they're going to take down camp, they're going to set up camp. One of the items that they take with them is what's called the Ark of the Covenant. It's a box, it's a very ornate box. There were specific things inside the box, but primarily the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence with His people. It was a visible symbol, God communicating to His people, I'm here, I'm with you. I'm going to always be with you. And if you forget that, just look at this box because this box is the symbol that I'm with you. And so God said, look, whenever you move, you're going to move the Ark of the Covenant too. It's going to go with you. And so you're going to set up camp. You're going to put the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the camp. And then you're going to tear down camp and you're going to go somewhere else and you're going to set up camp, which I find interesting that the most extensive story in the Bible about camping primarily deals with people disobeying God, right? Just me, but I'm pretty sure camping is a symbol of disobeying God, right? So, I mean, unless it has Holiday Inn Express involved, like, if it's camp, it's just me, maybe I didn't interpret that correctly, but they're camping, and the Ark of the Covenant is there. Now, David decides we need that back with us. Like, we need that in Jerusalem. If I'm going to be the king and my palace is going to be in Jerusalem, I'm going to rule from Jerusalem, it's going to be the capital, then the Ark of the Covenant needs to come with me. And so he sends some people to get it. Actually, he goes with them. This is 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. 
He and all his men went to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty. Again, this, this is the presence of God, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. So here's the picture. 30,000 men go with David to get the Ark of the Covenant. They put it on a cart. They're moving it back to Jerusalem, and everybody's singing and dancing. It's like this huge worship service, and they're going crazy, and they're singing worship songs, and they're playing instruments like harps and lyres and timbrels and castanets. We need more castanets in the worship band. I think castanets and cowbell would make our band awesome. So they're singing in castanets. Maybe they have a cowbell and they're worshiping, going crazy. It's just an incredible scene because this symbol of God's presence is finally coming to Jerusalem. And everything's going to be in one place. It's going to be an incredible day. And then this happens. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakan. Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. And like few things are a downer on a worship service like somebody dying in the middle of it. Right? Like, I know there's churches where you get bonus points for falling out, but we're not that church. And even in those churches, it is frowned upon to die in the middle of the worship service. And here they are. They're like going crazy for God and they're singing. And I mean, you heard the story that the oxen steps on a rock or off the road or in a rut or something, and he stumbles. The cart stumbles. It looks like the Ark of the Covenant is going to fall off the cart. And this poor guy reaches up and grabs it, which is what we think he ought to do, right? I mean, like if we're there, we're thinking that's the right move. Like that, this is the thing to do to protect the presence of God, protect the Ark of the Covenant. And when he grabs it, he dies. I mean, to be true to what the Bible says, the Bible says God struck him dead. And David is angry at first. It's like, what gives? We were in the middle of a worship service. I was just about to play my guitar solo. I was like, right there. Like, God, what is going on? And then David gets afraid because David's thinking, okay, I don't know why that happened. And, and how are we going to get the ark to Jerusalem now because ain't nobody touching the ark after this? Like, so they park it to go figure out what happened. Again, if you're just casually reading the story and you come across this part where the guy gets struck by God for trying to protect the Ark of the Covenant, you're thinking, what is God doing? But here's the backstory. Here's the part that 2 Samuel doesn't tell us. When God told the Hebrew children to make the Ark of the Covenant, God also told them how to move it. He's very specific. God said, the only people who are supposed to move my presence, this box, are the priests. Like the people who are consecrated, holy for leading worship. They're the only ones who are to move the box and they're never to touch it. So it was built with these rings on the side. 
And the priests would take poles and put them through the rings, and then they would put the ark on their shoulders so nobody ever touched the ark of the covenant. The priests were the only ones to move it, and God was very specific and said, this is what I want. And when God is specific in his instructions, guess what he expects in our obedience? Specific. When God gives details, he expects our response to be detailed. Now, he doesn't do that for everything. You and I could talk in the hallway. There's a lot of gray areas in the Bible. Like there are a lot of things that are kind of vague or maybe the Bible doesn't specifically address. And, and perhaps we could come to some different understandings of some of those. There's not a lot of them, but there's some of those. Like, well, I'm not sure if he means this or if we should do that or if he's definitely saying no or just kind of warning. There's some of that. But whenever God says, this is specifically how I want something, our response is to specifically obey what God has said. And when it came to moving the Ark of the Covenant, He gave very specific directions. Here's the thing. Even if you're the king, the details still matter to God. Even if you're the most powerful person in the country, even if you're the most powerful person in the world, the details of God's instructions and God's commands, they still matter to God. David finally figures this out. 1 Chronicles 15 is a couple books over from 2 Samuel. 1 Chronicles 15 is is the same story But it gives the details of the second trip. And guess what they did on the second trip? They got priests with poles. They put the poles to the rings. And the priests begin to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Now, the interesting thing about 1 Chronicles 15 is that at one point, David says, We did not inquire of the Lord as to how he wanted us to move the Ark of the Covenant. It's the first time in the story that phrase has been used. Up until this point, the Bible said over and over again, David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. And for the first time, in 1 Chronicles 15, we have this phrase, we did not inquire of the Lord. Like, even if you're the king, God still cares about the details. Now, the hard part for us is David's been the role model in this whole story. We want to be like David, and for the first time in the story, we see David make a misstep. We like our heroes to be perfect. We like our heroes to have no weaknesses or no downsides, or at least not really big ones. We like them to always do the right thing. The problem is people don't do that. The problem is even if you're the king, we're we're all a mixed bag of obedience and disobedience. We're all a mixed bag of, I'm pursuing God, but I'm not. And I don't offer that as an excuse. I'm not saying, well, that's just the way it is. Don't worry about it. You're going to have to do some things good and some things bad. Just blow it off. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if we forget that, we're headed for really big mistakes. If we forget, I'm capable of really messing up, that's when we're in trouble. If we buy into the notion that 
I'm strong enough. I don't have any weaknesses. That's when we're going to get in trouble. And that's where David was. And, and I don't know if it was becoming king. I don't, I don't know if he just felt like he had it all figured out. But there was this little chink starting to show up in his in his armor. And, and look, the bad doesn't cancel out the good. There were still a lot of good things about David. And the fact that he made some bad choices doesn't mean he didn't make any right choices. But the fact that he made some right choices didn't cancel out the bad choices he made either. And we have to be honest about both of those. And David is beginning to make little steps in the wrong direction. Now, here's the deception of little steps and little decisions. The deception is we forget that one little step leads to another little step leads to another little step leads to another little step leads to a disaster. I mean, that's the deception of bad decisions. That's the deception of blowing off what's going on inside. That's the deception of saying, well, I've got it handled. I've got it managed. And the tricky part is, David was leading worship that day. Here's the problem for us. Acts of worship on the outside doesn't correct what's going on on the inside. And I love, I love worship. I love public worship and us singing together. And I love our band. And I love to hear you sing. I love that. Here's what I know. This is the easiest place to fake it, though. I mean, of all places in our lives, this is the easiest place to fake spirituality. Because you know the songs. You sing the songs. We take communion together. We give offering. We shake hands. We smile. We hug. This is the easiest place to fake it. And that's where David was. He was singing and dancing and playing instruments. But there was stuff going on on the inside. Anybody keep up with the International Space Station? It's hard to see you with the lights, all those hands. Wow. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. So, nobody. Um, right now, right now, there are six astronauts on the International Space Station. Uh, three Americans, two Russians, one Italian. Um, and they're zipping around the globe at over 17,000 miles an hour, something like 4.63 miles per second. They circle the globe between 16 and 17 times every day. It's happening right now. It's been happening for years. Uh, Thursday, two of them did a six-and-a-half-hour spacewalk to repair, repair one of the robotic arms, and none of you thought about it, did you? Because right? you just think about yourselves. Shame on you. You didn't think about it. You didn't think about it today till I just mentioned it. But it's going on. 17, 16, 17 times a day. They're circling. They're going right, right over us. 17 times every day. We don't ever think about it. Here's, here's what I think. Not only do we not think about stuff that's way out there, Sometimes we don't think about stuff that's going on in here. It's just easy to ignore. It's just easy to pretend it's not going on. It's just easy to not pay attention to those little steps and those little decisions and those little thoughts and those little 
attitudes, those little things that just start leading away from God. And that's what David's dealing with. Wasn't thinking about it. Didn't see it. David comes back into Jerusalem, singing and dancing. Everybody thinks he's great. He's the king of everything. And his wife, Michael, some of you remember him, remember her from a couple of weeks ago. His wife, Michael, standing at the window. And the scripture says she despised him in her heart. She couldn't stand to look at him. She especially couldn't stand to look at him leading worship, singing songs. David eventually finishes. He goes inside, and they have words. You can read it in 2 Samuel 6. They they have words about how disgusted she is with him. And there are a lot of takes on Michael. Michael was the daughter of Saul. Uh, If you remember, um, way back many chapters ago, The Bible tells us that she was in love with David, and so Saul gave her to David as his wife. Um, She helps David escape at one point. Saul's men come to kill him, and she hides a statue in the bed, pretending that it's him. David goes out the window. She risked her own life for this husband that she loved. David leaves and never comes back. Never comes back. Never comes to get her. Never sins for her. Just leaves. 2 Samuel chapter 3, like verses 2 through 5 or 6, somewhere in there. We're given a list of David's six sons born to him by six different women. And there's some people that argue about the Bible and they say, well... The Bible, the Old Testament supports polygamy. No, it doesn't. God said from the very beginning, don't do this. This is bad news. But David, thinking he knew better, six sons, six wives. In in 2 Samuel chapter 5, he's described this way. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem and more sons and daughters were born to him. Like just adding more and more and more and more. Interesting that the the person who writes this, the narrator, describes it as concubines and wives. It's almost always, when you have that phrase in the Bible, it's almost always wives and concubines. Uh, Except here. From God in this particular area, it's out of control. And didn't even see it. Didn't even see it. Matter of fact, the one person who saw it was his first wife that he had eventually ripped from her second husband who truly loved her, if you read that story in the Bible. Truly loved her, truly wanted her to stay. And for political reasons, more than anything else, David goes and takes her back. And David comes in, worshiping and singing. And she's in the window, and she knows. She knows. She knows who he is and what he's done and what he's deciding. And here's what David didn't understand. He didn't understand that these little shortcuts that he was taking, these little excuses he was making, this little bend the rules that he was doing in one area of his life, this little bit of disobedience, was going to lead to more and more and more and would eventually... 
lead to the biggest, most public, most well-known disaster of David's life. What about us? What about us? What's going on in our heart that we've not attended to? What's been revolving around our heart and our world and our mind? And we've just been acting like it's not there. But given enough time, given enough little choices, it's going to lead to a disaster. And what God would say to us today is, I mean, look at this man's story. Look at, look at where it is and anticipate where it's going. God doesn't want that for us. God doesn't want that for you. We're going to sing in just a minute. We're going to sing a song we've come to love. It's a song, Mercy. And that's the great thing about God is when I wake up, when I go, oh, International Space Station, right? When I go, oh, that's really going on. Oh, I stop kidding myself. When that happens, like, like when we own it, when we say yes, then God rushes to us with forgiveness and grace and mercy and strengthening us to get us back on the right track. But we got to see it. We got to admit that this is, this is real and a problem, and I've got to make some changes. And when we do, God's mercy meets us in that. Let's pray. God, thank you for the honest telling of David's life. As much as we want him to remain the perfect hero, the strong, never doubting, never failing guy, none of us are. And that's not an excuse. It doesn't cancel out all the good things that he did. And and our mistakes don't cancel out all the right things that we do. But all the right things we do doesn't eliminate the consequences of the bad decisions we make either. And if we're honest, we'll admit they're subtle things. It never starts with the disaster. It starts with one thought or one decision or one conversation, and it leads to another one and another one, and then it, it leads to disaster. God, thank you. Our failing to sing, thank you that your mercy rushes to us in our failings to bring us back. Maybe there's somebody here who just needs to meet your mercy today. And the path to that mercy is just getting honest and owning what's happening in their heart. Help us to be brave, bold enough to do that. I pray it in Jesus' name.